0: thank you for listening to the redemption church podcast for more information about redemption church please visit redemptionokc.com you can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on itunes thanks again for listening We're in James chapter three. If you've got a Bible, you can turn in there. If you don't have one, and there's some on the table right back here, we'd love to give you one. Uh, We think it's an important thing. So love for you to have that. You can take it home and keep it with you. While you're turning James three, let me tell you a story. Uh, A couple years ago, I saw a movie called Big Fish. It was kind of a fantasy story, and I, it stuck with me when I saw it. And uh, How many of you seen Big Fish? You know the movie I'm talking about? Fantasy story really is about a father-son relationship and a father that's on his deathbed, and the son goes, and, and like many uh, father-son relationships, there's been some distance that, that happened in, over, over time. And the son, though, looked at his father and just had kind of this larger-than-life story that he had or image of his father that, that had really come down to him. And it's a fantasy story and this man had lived quite a remarkable life. But uh, you find out as, as they kind of have these flashback scenes and they go back in time and the father tells the son about his his, his life's journey and the adventures he'd been on, uh, you kind of see this this seminal event that happened early in this this man's life that really altered the course of his days. And it happened with several of his friends and they went out into the woods. And as they went out to explore, there was a rumor of a house that was, a, a house that was inhabited by a witch in kind of this, or this hidden area in the, in the forest. And so these, students, these kids went up to the house and uh, the three of them had heard these, th- this rumor that if you approached the witch, that she had a glass eye. And if she lifted the patch and allowed you to see the glass eye, you would have flashed before your eyes the moment of your future death. And so these three kids go up to the door and they knock on on, on the door and they look in the eye and it has remarkable effects on them. The first two looked in the eye and they saw the day and and the manner in which they would die and it had a horrible effect on them. They, they, They were terrified and lived in fear and they ran away. And then for the rest of their life, their life was fixated on that moment in dread in fear of that time that would come. But the third boy who became the father was the main character of the movie had a totally different experience. He looked in the eye and he saw the moment of his future death and he said, ah, that's how it happens. And it actually brought him freedom because he realized that nothing could touch him from that moment till the day he died that nothing could, 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 could break up that, 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 that path of his life. And so he felt free to take risks. He felt free to live on the edge. He felt free to, to live this great adventure. He felt free to try crazy things because he said, man, nothing can touch me until that day. So I might as well live it up and have a great time. And I think there's an important lesson in that for us. I mean, what made all the difference for this between these kids was their mindset. Their outlook, their approach, their understanding of what was ahead and what they believed about their future changed everything about the way they live today. I think that's an important lesson for us too. And how would you live if you had complete faith in the future to come? How would it change the way you thought about today if you had no doubts about what happens tomorrow? How would it free you up to live to, to live in, in freedom and not bound by worry and strife and difficulty and, and struggle in the here and now if you knew what the future held for you. I mean, I think that's what, uh, what we're gonna look at today. We're, today we're gonna look at the, a story of what happens when we live in fear of today. What happens when we live in, in worry that we're gonna miss out on something? What happens when we live with this anxiety that says, man, if I don't grab hold of everything I can get right now, then my end will not be what I want. And so it's all up to me. When we lack confidence in what lies ahead, that, that also can shape us. And we're gonna see the tension here in the book of James as we wrestle with this. And, and what, I wanna, what I want you to see is that your faith and your outlook will change your approach to your life and your relationships. Your faith and your outlook will change your approach to your life and to your relationships. So James 3, I'm gonna start in verse 13. Verse 13. Says, Who is wise in understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of the Lord. As we look at James and think about where we've been in James, James chapter two, we saw faith and works, that that somehow our, our faith is something we possess, something we have something we live out of and because we have real faith, that we are going to work it out and then it will show up in the course of our lives. We said that real faith really works to bring about change in our lives and that, 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 that our works are kind of a visible demonstration of an invisible reality of faith in our lives. So James is gonna continue that argument as we work here through this section of James chapter three. He's gonna, he's gonna expand on that argument. Who is wise and understanding among you? Raise your hand. He's gonna say, prove it, right? Who is wise and understanding among you? Out of his good conduct, let him show his good works. Let him, let him demonstrate it. Let him show that by the way in which he lives. Let him show the, his works and the meekness of wisdom. See, so we show off the work of God in us through the way in which we live, through the humility and the attitude and the atmosphere of our relationships. Now our relationships have a unique way of showing others what's really going on on the inside. But they, they put on display what's happening in our heart. I learned this lesson several years ago. Uh, I had a guy that came over, um, not here, so don't worry. Uh, those of you that maybe like start telling the story and you're like, oh no. Uh, this wasn't here, but I, several years ago, I had a guy come into my house and at my house wanted to meet with me and ask if he could. And as we started to talk, he began to shed tears. And in shedding his tears, he began to confess that he had actually worked against me, that he had undermined some things that were done. He'd spread some false rumors. He'd gossiped and actually tried to work against some of the things that we were doing in the life of the church. And as he confessed and he asked for forgiveness for that, I and mean, we spent a couple of hours just walking through that scenario. And, forgave the guy and said, man, let's, let's move forward. Let's keep going. And so gave him another chance and we did, we, we went ahead and man, he did great for three months. And then at about four, he started doing all the same things he had done before. And see, what I learned was this passage is true, that it's a lot easier to speak and to say something about wisdom than it is to actually walk in the humility of wisdom. And so what, what I, when I look at this passage, I think it's interesting because I think James had probably had some interactions similar to that as well. I think that's, that's at the root or what's behind. I'm kind of reading between the lines of James here, but I think some of that had gone on in the churches that James had been a part of, a part of as well. Look at verse 14. He just says, let, it, or, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, man, don't, don't boast and be false to the truth. And so he's beginning to wrestle with this idea as well. And think about the the words he uses there. He talks about jealousy and envy, uh, that that there's bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And where do those reside? He says, it's in your hearts. It's stuff that's going on in here that's showing up out there in your relationships. And so he speaks here of envy. Jealousy or envy, it's you want something someone else already has. So you look and they've got something and you want what it is they possess. that may not be a physical possession, it may be something else. You may, you may want their lifestyle, or you may want their role. You may want their, 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 uh, you, you may want their resources. You, you may want their, their position or their freedom. Uh, there may be something you may want their youth. There may be other things you look at and they have it, and you don't. And so you're, you're wishing you could grab hold of some of those things. Uh, But it's not always a physical possession. I think we we become envious or jealous of all kinds of things in life. And and those needing something now can really shape the way in which we live our days. And one of the commentators I read, Luke Timothy Johnson said this, and I thought this was really profound. He said, fundamental to envy is the conviction that humans live in a closed system. So what he means by that is there's not enough to go around. There's only so much and everything's closed off and we're stuck in this closed system, which means we have to fight over whatever's available to us. So fundamental to this idea of envy is a conviction that humans live in a closed system, a finite world of limited resources. There's only so much to go around. The world is a zero sum game. For one to have more is for another to have less. To become more, therefore, one must somehow possess more. The logic of envy moved, moves toward competition for scarce resources. So there's only a little bit out there to get a hold of in the world, and so we're, we, we are to live life in a competition to see who can get the most stuff. Because we're not just proud to have a little bit to meet our needs, we want to have more than the other guy. We want to have what they have. We want to take what they have and make it ours so that we have and they do not anymore. Now contrast that with a Christian perspective of how big a God is. I mean, go back, think of where we've been already in James. James has set the groundwork for this really well. Go back to James 1. James 1, 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all. See, in a Christian perspective, there's no shortage of wisdom. God, God owns everything and he gives generously to all without holding a grudge. James 1:17. Every good and perf- every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And do you feel how open that is? That's not a closed system. That's an open system that God possesses everything. There's nothing, there's no lack in God whatsoever. And he's a, he, he loves us like a father who loves to give good gifts to his children, the gospels tell us. And so there's no lack. But see, this tells us where the problem is. The problem's in our heart. See, if you lack faith in God, then everything's left to self and everything's left to a world that's defined and closed in and closing in upon itself. And so you're, you're forced to grasp. But if you, if you remove God from the equation, you're the one that's left to fight for yourself, which is why there's bitter jealousy and selfish ambition because everything rests upon your own shoulders. It's why there's personal agendas and one-upmanship over another and those who are overly determined to get their own way begin to wedge in they use their own personal influence to build their own platform, to build their own success, to build their own position or influence and enlarge their own borders. That's why James says, do not boast, right? Do not be proud. To take pride in or to put confidence in yourself is going to lead in boasting. It's, it's gonna lead you to boasting. See, what, what we understand here and what James, I think, is saying is that they, they, these aren't idiots, Like these are people that they they have an approach to life. They have a worldview. They have an outlook. They have a a, a sense of wisdom with which they're trying to live. It's not like they're, they're taking an accidental approach to life. They've considered their options and said, you know what? This is what I think is the best option for how to navigate the world. It's just not a biblical option. They have a logic of life. They make plans. They orient themselves. The problem is it's not God's plan. It's an earthly plan. And so as you get into this, Doug Moo uh, calls this phantom wisdom. I love the, that phrase, that it's, a, it's wisdom that has a certain form to it, but there's no real substance in it. And so it's a fake wisdom or phantom wisdom. Verse 15, uh, James makes that point. He says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. This is not godly wisdom or spiritual wisdom. It's earthly, meaning it's earthbound, meaning it's, it's a closed world that's stuck down here and doesn't have the does not have the the, the the sense of divinity to it. It's not revealed to them by God, but it's very earthbound, stuck and operating in the ways of the world. And he goes on and uh, talks about it being unspiritual, meaning it's opposed to the spirit. It's something that, that, that doesn't have its roots in the life of God, in the spirit of God, but it's an unspiritual thing, meaning it's not Christian. In fact, he goes on and says it's demonic. Now, this is actually a progression, right? So he goes, he, he's building his case and making it kind of making this, Crescendo or pushing it out to a bigger degree. So he starts off and says it's earthbound, then it's unspiritual, then he gets, pulls out the big, the tough stuff and says it's demonic. Now, when he says it's demonic, he's not saying that this, these people are possessed by a demon. He's saying that this is kind of devilish thinking, that this, is, this originated in more of a demonic sort of a, a realm. This idea reflects more the devil's way of operating than the Lord's way of operating. Think about it the way when Peter said, uh, when, when Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. This is kind of that sort of a thing. He's saying, look, you're operating according to a false set of principles, not the way that, we're, that we operate. So James says all of these things though have an effect on our relationships, right? That they're gonna cause disorder, that they're going to fracture, uh, fracture the, the community that God intended us to give. See, God wants us to live in a world of shalom, in a world where peace and wholeness reign, in a, in a world where the attitudes and atmosphere allow everyone to flourish and to grow. But when these things enter in, it begins to fray the fabric of the community. Um, so you see these harsh kind of emotionally manipulative, argumentative sort of things that, that create restless relationships. And you ever realize, just kind of know-it-all people just have B.O.? Like they have emotional B.O.? Like they walk in the room and you just, the smell of it just kind of turns you off. You know what I'm talking about? She knows exactly what I'm talking about, right? Um, but, but you do, you have those people that when they walk in, you're just like, oh no. And like the room just be, kind of begins to, to, to dissipate any of the energy in the room. And I, my, my son, Jake plays football and middle school boys, I just, you, you probably know this, but just in case you don't, you guys stink a lot when you work out. And you, when you exercise and you get in the car and it's, it's tough on the rest of us, there's a sense in which your BO takes over. But my, my, my son Jake has a unique ability in that his gloves for his football gloves, the ones he wore for, it was a wide receiver played, uh, as he plays as his gloves, they smell so bad that we literally count down the weeks to the end of football season till we can burn them because they need, to be, they need to be ruined. But I found this interesting thing. One of the other mothers that carpooled was a lot smarter than I was. And she uh, told us this story one time where she uh, said that, that she actually, when Jake gets in the car, she actually started keeping a Ziploc bag in her car. And she pulled it out, made him put the gloves in and sealed it off because she didn't want to have to smell that in her car on the drive whenever she brought Jake home. Now, she was smart because what she understood was when someone has... BO, you have to you have to seal it off. You've got to set a boundary between it and everything else. Otherwise that, that scent is going to pollute the atmosphere of everything around it. And it's going to hinder the joy of everyone in that organization. If you've ever had to lead an organization, you realize that sometimes you have to not put them in a not put them in a ziploc, because that's criminal. But sometimes <laughs> you have to set a boundary on people that have emotional B.O. Otherwise, they're going to drip all over the room and they're going to bring down the entire organization. And so you realize that has to happen. Parents, it's why sometimes you've got to set boundaries on kids at home when they're in a bad season. It's why sometimes we have to, we have to set these lines. And that's what I think James is trying to get us to understand that arrogant, demanding, inflexible people are like that. They change the atmosphere in a room so that everyone else has to smell the stuff that's coming out of their lives. It's interesting, James uses harsh words. He says, he says, your life is a lie. He says, don't boast, right? Meaning you're boasting, you're pretending you have something you really don't have. You're, you're not being real or authentic about it. Your life is a lie. Then he says, your message is a lie. He says, do not be false to the truth. And then he says, your impact will also be a lie. It's gonna bring about disorder in every mean practice. So he's he's talking here primarily, I think, to spiritual leaders who have gone astray and who have have brought in some kind of negativity into the life of the church. And how many times have you interacted with someone, invited them to church, and you just get the sense that maybe through the words, maybe through the reaction, that people go, Man, you know, I've sort of tried that and I've bare the wounds of some of my interaction with spiritual people and because of some of the harshness, because of some of the power plays and and the politics and the junk that happens sometimes in in spiritual movements or religious movements. I mean, they just have taken a step back from the faith and said, man, if that's what the manner looks like, I don't know if I want to believe the message. See, our message and our manner needs to go together. We need to have a scent and the aroma of the gospel about our lives, Here's the thing, it's easier for me to preach about sin than it is for me to preach about holiness and humility because I know a lot more about sin, right? It's easier to step on those toes. It's like that's territory I've lived in all my life. It's harder to to cultivate the other and to talk about the other. And I know that to be true for me, but also uh, seeing James that he's going to push us in a new direction. Uh, or he's going he's to point out though, the, the, the brokenness that sin, that sin produces. Verse 16, notice what it says. It says that selfishness and bitter attitudes are destructive of the community, that they produce disorder in every vile practice. Disorder means it's like the fabric of the community begins to get frayed and begins to come apart. If you imagine that we're a tapestry and the ends of it become frayed and it begins to unravel, that's kind of the picture he wants you to get is that when we, when we live in these ways, it unravels the fabric and the beauty of the thing that God has to stitched together. We disintegrate into an ineffective community an unhealthy community an ineffective witness. And it's, it, it hinders the mission of the church to go forward. It's interesting in this idea of every vile practice. Um, we, we think of vile, and some of your translations may say evil. It could actually be translated every mean practice, and by mean meaning like every base thing. And in some ways, it may not be speaking as much about kind of moral evil as just it's a worthless, meaningless, cheap piece of, um, of junk that, that doesn't really produce anything. It tends to be associated with lowliness or cheapness or just something that's, that's sort of worthless. It's a knockoff brand that's going to fall apart really quickly. We're saying is that this kind of stuff doesn't produce life in us, it generates more heat than light, more tension than harmony. It's people that talk at you, not with you. It's people that are that are that continue to debate rather than have conversation. But it's interesting that he says this is unfruitful, it's unhelpful, it's not going to give you, it's not going to take you where you want to go in life. It is the bottom line of what James is saying here. But friends, there's another way. This is what I love about. Uh, about the tension you feel in these passages. He kind of says, man, here's what this is, what's gonna happen if we live this way. But then he turns in verse 17 and he's gonna say, but you know what, you can live a different way. You don't have to live as a slave to all those things. If you change your perspective, if you change your outlook, if you change your approach to life, you can actually reorient your life and learn a new way of living. And so verse 17, we get this kind of new way uh, or a new idea. You notice what he says in Verse 17 but that's a word of contrast, right? So he's contrasting saying, but if we don't do all the stuff that we just talked about and we learn a new way, uh, you can live differently. Where does the new way come from? But in verse 17, but the wisdom from above. Notice that I think it's an important statement that the wisdom that we have has to come from outside of ourselves. Can I give you a prophetic statement today? If if the fullness of the wisdom that you're using to navigate life came from inside of your own skull, you are in trouble. If if the fullness of the wisdom that you're using to navigate, to decide how you're gonna live, all came from right here, then you're gonna be in trouble. We need wisdom from outside of ourselves. That's why James says, but wisdom from above. Wisdom that comes from God. Wisdom that's divine in origin. See, we need God's help. The wisdom of his word and the help of his spirit. And here's the good news. God, God loves to help us. God, God loves to offer us this kind of help. And so James is gonna tell us about this. The wisdom that comes from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. The list is, is a direct contrast with, uh, with, with the contentious argumentative guys we read about just before. Those who are given to self bitter envy and selfish ambition. Here he says, this is the way, in some ways he defines what it looks like to walk out the wisdom of humility or to live in, in meekness. So let's just walk through the list really quickly. First, he says pure. Pure just means that it's untainted, that it's undivided, that it's whole. And so it's a pure faith that says, man, God, I'm giving God all my all. I'm not holding anything back, but I, I want him to have all of who I am. And so there's a sense in which it's an unmixed heart, but it's purely or completely God's. And it's peaceable. Peaceable is willing to get along with others, to be reasonable, and fair, not battling to get one's way, but living a peaceful life gentle. One guy called this a friendly equilibrium, that that you live in a friendly equilibrium with those around you. It's courtesy. It's respectful. It's those who who are considerate of others and and respectful of their, their lives. It's the ability to disagree agreeably, right? I mean, we're always, gonna, we're always gonna have relationships where we disagree at times, but I mean, you can disagree and make it really hard if you can disagree in an agreeable way and walk away as, as friends. And, and so someone who is gentle disagrees agreeably. It's open to reason. This one's fascinating to me. Open to reason, literally, if you translate it, could mean able to be bent. It's a contrast to kind of a stiff-necked and stubborn way, but it's able to bend your knee to the will of another. I mean, you're, you're teachable. Someone can, can, can offer you some instruction and you're going, to, you're going to shift the course of your life based on that because you're able to bend your, wheel, your will to yield to another. It doesn't mean that you've got no backbone. It just means that you're, you're someone who can receive instruction. Full of mercy and good works. It means you're generous in your approach to others, that you kind of have an active compassion in the way in which you interact with those around you that that's what comes out of you. You're full of these things, so they spill over into the people around you. And so you're full of mercy that spills over onto other people around you, not just looking out for your own personal interests, but looking out for the interests of others. As Philippians says, you consider others as more important than yourselves, meaning you're so filled up with love that it's going to spill out on those around you rather than just turning in on yourself. Impartial and sincere. Uh, the last two things he mentions there. It's interesting, impartiality is something James has talked about elsewhere in the book of James, in, in, in his book, and, and really could, could speak to that here. Uh, in some ways, the, the word I think though can be translated better, undivided. It's undivided and sincere, meaning you're, you don't have a divided life, but your, your life is, whole, is completely in one, moving in one direction. And sincere, uh, and it's kind of paired with sincere. Sincerity is that it's simple. It's straightforward, it's predictable. Uh, you, you're not guessing what, is, what, what uh, that person is about, but it's obvious what they're about by their life, by their sincerity. And as I look at that list, what I see is that we need to be winsome people. And if your faith is real in you, there ought to be a sense in which there's something attractive about your life. Something that, that people look at and go, man, I wanna know more about a life that looks like that because there's some wisdom in there and some humility in there. That 's appealing. see, people, people will grow and flourish in an atmosphere of peace. he 's going to say in verse 18 that that 's what ultimately allows us to grow. But selfishness and defensiveness never help. Um, and how easy is it for you to laugh at yourself? You know I look at this, I just think as we navigate the relationships of life, and as I think about my own way, I mean this is hard sometimes it's hard to live at peace with others. sometimes it's easier to defend my own territory. Sometimes it's easier to kind of set up some walls to try to protect myself from someone else. And yet, when I look at this, I see this call and this invitation in to a different way of life. And one guy, Stuart Briscoe said this about a pastor and really he was talking about any Christian leader, but I think it applies to all of us. He says, qualifications for a pastor, he says, you need the mind of a scholar, the heart of a child and the height of a rhinoceros, right? Like you gotta get some thicker skin. And this is one of those things that honestly, for me was something I've had to learn and grow into in some ways, that not everything needs to penetrate to the core of your being, that some stuff just needs to deflect and bounce off and don't need to be taken in. But it's tough to live like this and to walk in wisdom. Friends, what would it look like if we sought to be as winsome as Jesus? You ever notice when you read the gospels, how everyone wanted to be with Jesus. They wanted to spend time with him after they had interacted with him. His life filled the tank of those around him in a unique way. I remember thinking about some of those interactions this week. Jesus meets a tax collector who was kind of an outsider in that culture and in almost every way was considered a traitor to his own people and so was kind of an outcast. And Jesus meets him and this guy that had an incredibly wealthy job, a job that produced incredible amount of wealth for him. Jesus said, you know what? I need you to give that job up. I need you to come follow me. And Matthew does it. And then what's the first thing it says Matthew does? He goes and invites all his other tax collector and sinner friends over and throws them a great big feast and asks Jesus so they can all meet Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Matthew, your way of life is not okay. You need to change it. Come follow me. And Matthew says, hey, you know what? I would love to introduce you to everyone I know who lives the same way I used to live. That's pretty remarkable. There was something about Jesus that attracted him. Jesus tells a woman about her broken marriages and says, you're right, the man you ran into now is not your husband. In fact, you've had five husbands and and begins to to kind of meddle in her business. And she goes and tells the whole city and says, hey, come meet the man who told me everything I ever did. That's remarkable. That something about the interaction and his manner, even in speaking hard truth, drew her to him and she wanted to introduce others to him. Jesus heals a man and the man begs him, said, hey, can I just go with you? I'll drop everything. I just want to be with you. Jesus, um, a lady with an embarrassing illness is seeking Jesus out in a crowd and says, and if I can just get close enough to touch the hem of his garment, something good would happen. There's a sense in which people wanted to be with Jesus. Other leaders thought Jesus was too important to hang out with the kids. And Jesus came and said, bring the little children unto me. And he wanted them to come. Jesus Continually built bridges of relationship to other people. See, true wisdom gets along with others. True wisdom continues to connect us to others. Verse 18 tells us about the future. Verse 18, as we get to kind of the close of this passage, is going to point us to a future good that comes. Notice he says, a harvest. What is a harvest? A harvest is something you plant and you wait for. A harvest is something you're, you're, you're anticipating, something you're expecting, something you're longing for, something you hope comes to fruition, right? You've planted something and you're, you're waiting and you're hoping that something good is gonna, gonna grow up out of that. And so he's talking about this kind of future orientation, this thing that's going to come down the road. You plant your seeds in hopes that they'll yield a great harvest. How do we get the harvest we want out of life? It comes from when a peaceful man acts in peaceful ways. He, he speaks... Here it says the harvest of righteousness, meaning that we become like Jesus. How do we become like Jesus? How do we reap a harvest of righteousness? We do it when we've sown in peace by those who make peace. You sow seeds of peace as people of peace. That's how righteousness ultimately develops in us. And Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. in in the Beatitudes, Peace or shalom, this idea is really a bigger idea than we think about it. We kind of think of it like this kind of like, I'm gonna have this moment or this feeling of peace or something in me. And I think that may be an aspect of it, but biblically it's a lot bigger than that. The of shalom means flourishing and wholeness for all of humanity. It's the way God designed the world. When he built the world, he intended for us to live in this sense of shalom or peace that is this constant flourishing of life, this fullness of life that, that we were intended to have. And what happened is sin always disrupts the shalom in life and always breaks it up. And if we want to overcome, if we want to move back into shalom, it means for us to do business with the sin that is there so that this flourishing can take root again. So the piece here is not just a, pain, a tranquil person kind of at rest with himself, it really is, speaks much more to our relationship with God, to our relationship with others, to our relationship to our world and the way in which we're supposed to live. And it's most clearly seen in Jesus. You know, if you think of the way, uh, what we know about Jesus, look at uh, in Philippians 2. It says, let each of you not, I'm sorry, uh, verse, Philippians 2, verse 3, do nothing from rivalry and conceit. Who does that sound like? That sounds like the selfish ambition and bitter envy, right? Uh, the people we were talking about earlier in James 3. But, but Paul in, in Philippians says, do nothing from rivalry and conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the, for, in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped or hold on to. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Christ showed us the way. He showed us what humility looked like. He didn't hold on to his position, but he emptied himself, became a man, even then it was obedient to the point of a cross. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we have peace with God and we have right relationship with him, then we can live peaceably. This is, this is the source of wisdom from above. That ultimately it's, it's seen most clearly in Jesus and in his cross and in his resurrection, in the gospel. It is the thing that tells us the most about, about what this life looks like. That's why true wisdom is grounded in humility. See, humility says that we cannot save ourselves. We're dependent upon Christ for our salvation. See, the Christian life says we, we can't depend upon ourselves. We're dependent on wisdom from above. We can't, we can't even empower ourselves to walk in these ways. We're dependent upon the Spirit to produce the fruit of the Spirit in us so that we can walk by faith, not by sight. We can't produce the harvest of righteousness ourselves. We need God to do it for us. So friends, here's the question. Is your, is your life marked by wisdom? To, to say it in terms of James' way, who's wise and understanding among us? is your life characterized by this kind of wisdom? Does it look like the, the wisdom of Christ? And maybe you've never put your faith in God. Maybe, maybe as you sit here today, there's, there's just a sense in which you look at your life and say, man, I, I feel disordered. I feel disordered in here and I feel disordered in my relationships. And I just know that some of the ways I've operated have not fleshed themselves out as I would have hoped. And you need to come today. And your first thing is to acknowledge you need help from above that you need a Savior who would take care of that sin, and you need a reorientation of life. And maybe what you need to do today is to surrender your life to God and to His grace and His forgiveness, and then to ask Him for wisdom, to know how it is that you are, that you are to live. And the good thing is God meets you where you are. He meets you where you are, and He loves to offer that kind of help. Now for all of us, and are we walking in that kind of wisdom? Are there areas where, and as I talk today, you kind of go, man, there's some places where I feel like that pressed in on my heart a little bit. Maybe, maybe I need to just confess, Lord, and I've been prideful in this. Or, or Lord, I've, been, I've tried to get my own way and navigate my own course in this. And I need to, I need to confess that and just to lay it down. And I need, to, I need you, your help to repair some of the disorder in my relationships and in my life. And I need to find peace with you so that I can be at peace with others. And you just need to ask God for help today. And the, the wisdom that we need comes from our relationship with God. I think it's interesting that if you look at the scriptures, it says that uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If we want this kind of wisdom, it says it starts with the fear of the Lord. And when you think of the fear of the Lord, that, that's not like, you know, I'm trembling, shaking, and you know my knees are knocking, and I'm shaking and fearful of something. It really is a bigger concept than that. Biblically, the fear of the Lord is more like I'm standing in awe of God. It has much more the sense of you walking up to a cliff and looking down the 1,500 foot drop on the edge of the cliff and looking at the vast sunrise that's here and just stepping back and going, Whew, I took my breath away. I don't want to speak. I just want to take it all in. That's, that's the picture of the fear of the Lord is that when you encounter him, when you see him for who he is, that you just, you, you're, you're stopped in your tracks and you're in awe and you just want to soak in it because you're afraid to move too close but you also don't want to leave. That there's something that's captivating about that for you. Friends, when you, when you know God and you know His majesty and you trust your future to His care, when, when you understand that Jesus said, or, or that the scriptures say that He who began a good work in you will continue to perfect it, means he, when, when Jesus talks about His relationship with the Father, He says, all that the Father gave to me, I will not lose a one of them. Jesus is going to hold on to you. He's never going to let go to you. Your future is sure. And he's more majestic than anything on this planet to get. And so your attention, when your attention is, is down here fighting for all this stuff down here, I assure you, there's a day when you're going to see him and this stuff's going to seem petty and you're going to want it to, you're just going to let it go and you don't even want it. And so we need to fix our eyes on heaven and trust a wisdom that's from above, trust something that's secure, trust that he is going to deliver us one day so that we no longer bow down and worship in the disorder of the stuff of earth that won't really satisfy us anyway. And this week I was reminded by this as Eugene Peterson died at the age of 85 and he was a pastor and a writer and a guy that I've I've read a lot of his books. I've, I've gone to hear him speak and has really been a, just a good reminder of the importance of the local church and the importance of the word of God. And, and really for me personally, just reminded me that, man, there's a lot of unhealthy ways that spiritual leaders operate and kind of a check on some of those things to point me in a healthy direction. And so as, as I read this week of his, or last week of him being put on hospice care with some dementia and some heart issues and other things that were going on and knowing that he was in his last days, kind of watched that. But his friends, um, after his death, I was reading some after he passed. And one of the things his friends said, friends and family kind of, as they were were talking about how he passed, that he passed with a circle of friends that he had conversations with. But there was something he said in his last hour that really stood out to me and stood out to them as well. And they said that that towards the end, one time he kind of looked up and just said, let's go. Let's go. And see, there's something about that, that that is beautiful and good. He was confident about his future. He knew what lay ahead. He knew that, that his Lord was going to deliver him. And so he didn't have fear. He was able to in freedom just say, Man, let's go. And so friends, what I wanna say to you today is, let's go. Uh, maybe not today. Uh, maybe, maybe not tomorrow. Maybe not in five years or 10 years or 30 years. I don't know how long we've, we have, but let's start going now. Let's not live as though we have to live for this now and one day learn to say, let's go. I think the message of James is, let's go. Let's begin going now. And let's orient our lives with confidence that our God will deliver us one day. And as we wait for that day, let's go now and live in the freedom in all the days between now and then. Our future is sure. So what does it look like for us to walk in freedom from some of the little things that bother us now? And just go, you know what? This is not define me because my future is sure. I don't have to walk in fear because my future is sure. I don't have to walk in doubt because my future is sure. I don't have to walk in pettiness and, and bickering and arguing because my future is sure. So I'm freed to operate in peace. Friends, let's go. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would give us great confidence that one day we will go to be with you. And one day there are new heavens and a new earth that emerge that will pale everything that we know of joy by comparison. Father, that you will give us things that are far superior to the things that attract our attention now. Father, until then, would you frame our lives with a sense that we are headed to be with you, and that we can trust you in in all things. As one who loves to meet us where we are, and loves to give us good gifts, like a father does his job. Father, help us to believe it to be true. pray in Jesus' name, amen.